start studying the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet of God who ministered from 740 years before the time of Christ until 700 years before the time of Christ. His ministry spanned 40 years. And his burden, the message that God had given him, was the coming judgment of exile. Not a very popular message, I'm sure. But here's what Isaiah was telling the people of Israel. Guys, God is going to kick us out of the promised land because we have not lived up to our side of the covenant. God told us way back when, when we first entered into a covenant with him, if you fulfill your covenant obligations, you will be secure in the land, there will be abundance, it will be awesome. But if you sin, then I will judge you. I will discipline you. And if you repent and return, great. But if you persist in your sin, eventually, I will remove you from the promised land. And Isaiah's message is, guys, that's where we are. We have sinned, and we have ignored God's repeated discipline. And we're stiff-necked, we're hard-hearted, we're persistent in our sin. And so the time has come, God is going to remove us from the land we're going to exile. Of course, exile is not God's final word. Judgment is never God's final intended word. God is sending the people to exile in order to refine them, in order, in order to break them free from the stranglehold of sin. And so Isaiah also foretells a glorious return and a restoration of the heart of the people. Well, in our text today, today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 5, in our text today, Isaiah begins with an analogy of a vineyard to communicate to the people of his day the, the, the fundamentals of their spiritual condition. Now, by choosing an analogy of a vineyard, he was sure to have his audience uh, in, his, in the palm of his hand uh, listening in, uh, with rapture. Because everyone around Isaiah was super familiar with a vineyard. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. He might have been a member of the royal court. And the agriculture around Jerusalem was vine growing. And the growing of grapes, that's what the soil was good for. And so uh, everyone in Jerusalem had seen a vineyard and was very uh, familiar with how a vineyard was planted. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. And then I can imagine that Isaiah began to sing my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a wash in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He was probably a much better singer with a much better tune. But his, his hearers were right there with him. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They could visualize this. There's a vine dresser, and he owns a plot of land, and it's on a hill, and it's a fertile piece of property, fertile soil. He has a vision of planting a vineyard and a vineyard that's going to grow beautiful grapes. And he does everything that he should do. He clears the land of all the stones, and there were lots of stones. The soil uh, around Jerusalem is rocky. And so it took him a lot of time and a lot of energy, and maybe he had to hire workers, and it cost a lot of money. So many rocks that he was able to build a stone uh, perimeter around his entire vineyard. And then he churned up the soil, and he built a watchtower in the middle to keep out the bad guys and the animals. And then he went out, and he found choice vines, and he bought those choice vines, and he brought it back to his vineyard, and he planted them. And then he had to wait for at least a year for the grapes. But then the vines grew, and the grapes came, and you can just see that day when the vine dresser went out and he plucked his first grape. What in the world? That's bitter. Pulls another grape. This is not what I was expecting. This is not what I was wanting. What in the world? I have spent all this time and energy and money, and this is what I get. Isaiah goes on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, so who's his audience? The people in Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Guys, whose who's fault is this? Did I, did I, the vine dresser, do something wrong? I mean, what else could I have possibly done to plant a good vineyard? And Isaiah's audience, unaware that he was setting them up to point out their own sin and failure, uh, I'm sure that they said, nothing, you didn't do anything wrong. The problem is not you, you did everything you should, could have done. You, you know, your, your part was flawless. There's got to be a problem with the vines themselves. It's not your problem. You couldn't have done anything more. It's the vines. Verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. And the wild animals are going to, I just let the wild animals come in here and eat these vines and eat these wild grapes. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I'm going to let the people come through here and walk all over it. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I'm not going to spend any more time, energy, or money on this vineyard. I'm just going to just let it go to pot. I also will command the clouds that there rain no more rain upon it. Now this is the first indication that this vine dresser might not just be a person. But Isaiah's audience 
audience, I'm sure, up to this point, is fully with him, and they are probably thinking, yeah, yeah, don't spend any more time, money, and energy on this field. Uh, you did everything you could do. If something's wrong with the vines, then you just, you're gonna have to move on. Call it a sunken cost, and uh, go, don't waste any more time on this vineyard, and go start, start over somewhere else. I'm sure that they would have agreed with the, the judgment of the vine dresser, his decision. And now at this point, Isaiah's got his hearers where he wants them, and now he points the proverbial bony prophetic finger and says, you are the vines. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God spent time, energy, resources on you, Israel. He planted you, he did everything he could do, and he, he was looking for a harvest of righteousness and justice. And what does he find? Bloodshed, an outcry. He finds wickedness in his people. This isn't what he expected. And so what's he going to do? He's going to allow, in fact, he's going to call foreign armies into the land to conquer the land and haul off the people into exile. His, his vineyard that he had been protecting, that he had been caring for, he's now going to remove his care and protection, and he's going to allow it to be destroyed. Destruction that will end up refining it and breaking the stranglehold of sin on his people. Now, Isaiah is speaking to Israel, people who had, um, in whom God had poured out his grace, and then they had squandered God's grace. And they hadn't given back to the Lord what he was looking for. But you know, this is true for all people, because God has been gracious to all people. In fact, we're told that in him we live and move and have our being. That we owe our very existence to God and our very life breath to God. He has been good to us. And he has a plan for our lives. God expects something from us. He created us in his image, and he expects us to reflect his character. And yet there are so many people who are, whose lives are not characterized by righteousness and justice, who are not reflecting the character of God. But their lives are bitter in the mouth of the Lord, not sweet. And I'll tell you, this is, no more, this, this is, this is not more true for anyone but the, than the Christian. Because we are the recipients of God's greatest grace. Jesus, in human flesh, showing us what it looks like to please the Lord in the body. Jesus, hanging upon the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin in his own body. And then bursting forth from the grave to defeat the power of sin and death. And he's given us his word, and he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's given us the church, and he's given us leadership. He has poured out, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done? What more could God have done for us? And God is looking for a harvest of righteousness and justice from his people. When God bites into my life, when he bites into your life, is it sweet to him, or is it bitter? And we want to be a people that, that make God smile, that bring him joy and not heartache. We don't want him uh, soured by us. Isaiah then continues and he names five sins that are especially bitter to the Lord amongst his people. And they are set off in the text with the word woe. And the first woe is found in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Greed. Greed. There are people in Israel in Isaiah's day who are building bigger and bigger houses, who are adding fields upon fields. They've got these giant estates, and the result is the every man has no land left for him, which is against the will of the Lord, because God had divided the promised land amongst the 12 tribes, and every family got a land allotment, and at least every 50 years, the land was to revert back to the original families so that you didn't get in society this great diversity of super wealthy and everybody else. But there were people who were not doing it God's way because of greed. Need can be satisfied. Greed can never be satisfied. Greed always wants a little more, a little more, a little more, and it's very grievous to the Lord, and it's detrimental to our spiritual lives. And so the Bible warns us against greed, and instead it says, cultivate a heart of contentment. Learn to be content with what God gives you. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Is that true for me? Will I be content with just food and clothing, the necessities? Will I be content with what God has given me, or will I greedily long for more and more? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you desire to be rich? Be careful. That leads to bad places. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Wow, greed can actually cause you to leave your faith in Jesus Christ and have pierced themselves with many pains. Boy, don't be greedy. Cultivate a heart of contentment. Let me give you a combat strategy if you are uh, experiencing greed in your life. Combat it with giving. Combat greed with giving. If God has given you the gift of getting, accompany that with the gift of giving. When you give money away, you are directly combating greed. Jesus tells a story about a, 
A man ran a bumper crop so much, he brought in such a great harvest, he did, it overflowed his storehouses. He had a tremendous opportunity to be rich to the Lord, to give to the poor, and to uh, fund the work of the Lord around the world. What did he do? Instead, he just bought built bigger barns, and God said, tonight, you fool, I require your soul. You missed your opportunity to store up treasures in heaven because of your greed. Boy, we don't want that to be true of us. So combat greed with giving. The second woe uh, we find here in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who carry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have wire and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. This is self-indulgence. Isaiah is not saying it's, you know, it's okay. It's okay to have a party every once in a while. So take a drink a glass of wine every once in a while. The problem here is that these Israelites have made pleasure their life's pursuit. They rise early in the morning, and what, what are they doing? They're running after drink. They carry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They're spending time and energy and money on the pursuit of pleasure, and it's leaving nothing left over for God. And so, you ever heard uh, someone say, oh, I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to read my Bible and pray. I don't have any money to give to the Lord. I certainly don't have time to go join some small group Bible study. And yet, how much time are they spending watching Netflix or reading their uh, mind candy novels or off camping and fishing and hunting? Is, is the problem that they're, they're pursuing pleasure uh, to such an extent that there's no time left over for God? How do you combat self-indulgence? By ensuring that you give time and money and energy toward the things of the Lord. And that requires discipline. Discipline yourself to give to God. Discipline yourself to read your Bible and pray. Discipline yourself to go to church and spend time with the people of God. And that's a choice. We can do that. <clears throat> the third one we find in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. That's great imagery. People uh, who are pulling sin along with them, like a, like a cart attached to them. So these are not people who sin every once in a while and are quick to repent and return to the Lord. No, these are people for, with, for whom sin is just a lifestyle. 24-7, wherever they go, they bring their sin along with them. Right? They're in an adulterous affair, and they're just going to stay there. They're angry, and they know that they're angry people, and they're not going to go get any kind of counseling. They just reconcile themselves to that sin. And... Now in verse 19, here's how they respond to Isaiah's warning that God is going to judge sin. They mock it. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. So Isaiah's saying, hey, God, sin is bringing down the judgment of God. God's going to judge sin. And they're like, oh yeah? Bring it on. Let, let's see it happen. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. They're cynical. They don't believe Isaiah. They don't believe all this God talk and that there's such a thing as sin and God's going to punish sin. They're like, come on. We don't believe that. They're just a, a grumpy old prophet, prophet who is trying to tell us you know, how we can live and not live. Cynicism. Combat cynicism by meditating upon the sure coming judgment of God upon sin. The fourth woe we see in verses 20 and 21, there are two woes here, but they are so closely linked, I'm going to deal with them uh, as one. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is postmodernism. Uh, this is moral relativism. Uh, this is, there is a right and a wrong. There is a, a, a light and a darkness. There is a, a tastiness and a bitterness in reality. And yet, and who defines that? Who gets to label things right and wrong and true and false and, and good for us and bad for us? God does. God makes judgments about certain behaviors and attitudes and motivations and actions, and, and he says, that's good, that's bad, that's right and wrong and true and false, and we'll bless you and, and this will harm you. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to accept his judgment and live in line with it. And yet moral relativism says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to I'm to reserve for myself the right to decide what's good and bad for me, right and wrong for me, true and false for me. I don't need God to tell me what's good for me and bad for me. I can decide that myself. There's that verse 21. They're wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. I know what's best for me. And boy, you don't have to look very far in our society to see moral relativism all over. In fact, it, it is the philosophy of our day. So, for example, here's a, here's a very popular one. Um, by the way, so what's happening? People are, things that God has said, that's evil. And the, and the, uh, the moral relativist says, nah, not really. Actually, I disagree with you, God. I, I think that's a good thing. So, for example, popular one today is, you know, hey, my body is male, but I, I think of myself as a female. And the society says, you know what, that's a good thing. You're in touch with the real you. You need to be authentic, you know, live out of who you really are. And God says, no, no, no. When what you think about yourself doesn't match reality, you're deluded. That's not healthy. Get your thinking in line with your body. That's what's good for you. And we, we live in a society that's increasingly disagreeing with God and trying to relabel what God has labeled bad is good and good is bad and true is false and, and it's just uh, very bitter 
in the mouth of the Lord. Can a Christian do that? Well, think about the Christian who says, well, I don't think the whole Bible, literally, or some parts of the Bible I think are outdated, or they, maybe they work for other people, not for me. I pick and choose uh, what I'm going to submit to within the scriptures, what I'm going to believe and not believe. That's a moral relativist. And so what do you do? You combat moral relativism by accepting God's judgments as final. And you live in light of them. Final woe is here in verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who equip the guilty for a bride and deprive the innocent of his right. God has established leadership in the world. And when you occupy a position of leadership, it's for the purpose of promoting, promoting righteousness and camping down evil in the world. It's so that you can serve other people, not yourself. And here are leaders in Israel who, they should be heroes at defending the weak and promoting justice. They should be valiant in fighting against uh, unjust and wicked, wickedness. And instead, what are they heroes at? Drinking wine. What are they valiant at? Mixing strong drinks. And they take bribes and they pervert justice. Irresponsible leadership. You know, parents, that's a leadership position. God has entrusted a little life to you. And as a parent, our job is to provide good food and shelter and security and train this child up in the, in the knowledge of the Lord and help them listen to them, spend time with them, help them process their fears and their failures and their hopes and their dreams. It takes time and energy and money. And yet, some parents are so busy managing their social media uh, profile and watching TV and getting high and drinking and out partying that they're not giving their kids what their kids need. Irresponsible leadership. And, in, and it's bitter in the mouth of the Lord. So, there is greed, self-indulgence, cynicism, there, um, more relativism, irresponsible leadership in the land of Israel, and it's bitter in the mouth of the Lord. And so what's he going to do? Verse 26, He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. He's going to raise up the flag. He's going to wave the, big, the banner. He's going to whistle. And the Assyrians are going to come. In 722, the Assyrians conquer the ten northern tribes of Israel and haul off the people in exile. That's during Isaiah's lifetime, kind of in the middle of his ministry. And then after, uh, after Isaiah leaves the scene, 125 years later, 586 B.C., the Babylonians come and conquer the two remaining tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and haul them off into exile. See, God planted a vineyard for the purpose of getting good grapes. But the vineyard's producing wild grapes. Listen, God gave you life so that you might reflect him in the way that you live. You're creating the image of God. He wants you to reflect his image accurately. And you know what? If, you, if you're not doing that, if rather than justice and righteousness, there's wicked and, wickedness and injustice in your life, God's going to act to deal with that. And listen, Christian, God has poured out his grace upon you. He has saved you. Not so you can continue to live the way you've always lived until he takes you to heaven, but he's changed, he has saved you so that you can, so, so as to change you, so that you can live a Christ-like life. It's good for you, it's good for the people around you who are drawn to God, and it brings glory to the Lord. And so, how does the fruit of our life taste to our God? Search me. King David said, search me, O God, and know me. Try me, see if there's any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the Lord, through his word today, might have convicted you of some, some unsavory fruit in your life. Greed. Is there greed in your life? That's better to the Lord. Self-indulgence. Is there self-indulgence in your life? Cynicism. Is there moral relativism in your life? Is there irresponsible leadership in your life? Right now is the time for you to process with the Lord, do business with the Lord. I, I encourage you to ask the Spirit of God, search me, know me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. Allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life. And then if He reveals sin, you repent. He is faithful. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to produce uh, the fruit of His Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God is pleased with such things. So right now, just uh, between you and the Lord, take some time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, these stories of old have been written down for our edification, edification, we have something to learn. And I think the big takeaway today is God has a vision for our lives. He has a, a harvest of righteousness and justice that he wants from his people. And he, he won't allow us to continue in our sin forever. He will act to 
uh, to break the stronghold for, of sin in our lives. And you know what? It's a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot easier when we will humble ourselves and repent before the, the, the mighty discipline of the Lord has to come down upon us. So let's not be stiff-necked people. Let's be soft-hearted people, quick to repent and change. In Jesus' name, amen.